Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 36. My name is DK, the creative producer of Creative Welly. You can find us on the dot com. And straight off the bat, I'd like to give a big thank you to John O'Tucker over at Empire Films, the video producer of Creative Welly. And also a thanks to David at Flashdog Studio, who hosts us as well. In this episode, we're going to chat to Lorinda Thomas. She covers off all the libraries and the community spaces here in Wellington. And also with her is Guy Maric, an architect and also someone who teaches it as well at the Victoria University in Wellington. In this conversation, we cover off all things space relating to libraries and communities, but also obviously architectural spaces. Well, we explore both of these good humans and their backgrounds and histories and what got them into what they're doing now. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So just give us your attention for about an hour and a half and enjoy. So let's start with a nice little kickoff question about Kind of, if you were, if I were to meet you as a stranger and I was to ask you to tell me about you and what you do, what you exist for, how would you answer and respond to that question? Who wants to go first? You go first. Okay. Uh, well, I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, because you asked us to write a little biography. I and I was looking through everybody else's biography and I was thinking, what am I doing? And there's all these innovators and chief executives. Oh. I'm like, oh my gosh, the humble public servant. Um, and, but one of the things I realized as I was writing, trying to write a biography, is actually the thing that I really love doing is trying to solve problems and create opportunities kind of out of chaos, actually. That's the thing I really enjoy. Okay. And my career, you wouldn't think libraries would provide tons of opportunity for that. But somehow it does because mm. there, it's just a profession that kind of evolves and evolves. Yeah. And there is just always something going on and there's just always a new challenge or a new obscure thing to solve or um, a new piece of chaos that's kind of thrown into the mix. You know, we live in local government. Every three years there is kind of the chaos of a new council and all of the weird things that that throws up. That's great. I love the chaos. That's great. What a great description. Yeah. Thank you. What about you then, Well, I was just thinking in terms of if you're a librarian, traditional view of a librarian is it's a place, or a library, it's a place where you store books and the librarians look after the books. And I thought that was it. But you're telling me there's a lot more to it than that. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more to it. There's always more. We we find, as I'm from the School of Architecture, we find that the the students hardly ever look at the books. You know, they sit there amongst the books and they... tap away but they they rarely look at books but they, they'll look up a pdf file mm. and then in auckland university which had the new zealand's best possibly the one of the world's best um architecture libraries and they've just closed it down stripped it out and they haven't demolished the building yet but they're planning to demolish yeah, the place it's just well, sitting there empty it's it's just it's so sad because yeah. the library to me there was a really special space yeah. they had um paintings and models mm. you know, the, and sometimes on the shelves they'd have shelves of books either side and they put a model up they had one of the Hagia Sophia mm. so it went um, had some sticks across the top and if you stopped in a certain spot and looked up and you'd be inside the dome of the Hagia Sophia wow. so it was a really wow. invigorating um, sort of space and mm. so literally a century of, of architectural model makers and drawings and huge had a big wall so you could have banners on the wall and people, you know, all these things. And so the library was this totally, totally creative space. But that's so unusual for a library. Normally they're fairly serious, not a lot of talking. 
They can be. Not a lot of conversation going they on. They can be. But I think I think we're seeing a total shift in the last decade in terms of what libraries can be. And listening to you talk about the, the architecture library, the administrator on me kind of goes, oh, I kind of understand why that's happened. But then the person in me that kind of wants to be inspired also thinks, what a complete tragedy. Mm. Because there are... There are Things and I think particularly in architecture too, they don't really they don't translate well to a PDF or no. to a computer screen, but the opportunity to kind of look up at something in a book um, and kind of see that and kind of browse through is such a different experience, and that it makes me sad to think about that because yeah. there is because it's not only the ability to um, to look at a uh, to look at a screen or a PDF, but also to sit next to somebody and have the conversation about what you're. Yeah. viewing as well and all of that is is lost yes it's, it's an absolute tragic mm. tragedy in, in Auckland the whole architecture school was designed around a courtyard with a big oak tree and and the um, library in the centre so that was all you know oh. exactly what you wanted keystone it. piece of oh, absolutely yeah. and I think they've chopped the tree down oh. and um, they've probably paved <laughs> over the courtyard and demolished the library and it's like you know, you had the perfect setup. Uh, you lost everything. How symbolic and, to chop down uh, the tree as well. I know. Well, you know, it was rotten, so we'll chop the entire uh, tree down. You know, it was, it was fine. You know, I think they planted a pot plant somewhere. <laughs> so sad. It's so sad. Bless I mean, them. I, you wow. know, I love that. That I re, that's where I went to university at Auckland, and I just love that space. And here mm. in Victoria, we haven't got anything like that, um, which is at the architecture school. Um, so it's a bit of a problem, mm. I think. My, some of my first jobs were uh, in academic libraries and the difference between that and what I do now, kind of in a public library, mm. it's it's so different because one of the express purposes is really about kind of imagination and creativity and you don't always see that coming through yeah. uh, in an academic library. Like it, there, there was so much opportunity for that to happen yeah. but it doesn't always kind of come through because there are so many kind of uh, academic topics all mingling in there together and, and that creativity or that ability to kind of be creative in that space is very much secondary to kind of the academic pursuit of actually what's inside the texts. Mm. But there's mm. also a curatorial element to libraries in the past in terms of featuring certain books are the obvious ones, right? Pulling them out to try and give them some space to be seen. Yeah. And but then the curio- curatorial stuff of what we got in the back versus what we got in the front and yeah all this other stuff, and a, a librarian as a, a kind of a conduit for that type of kind of knowledge seeker or knowledge en- endeavour, right? which I think, again, doesn't get much, much spotlight for librarians. And the curatorial aspect can be quite controversial as well. So, uh, so certainly when I was working in academic libraries, there, was, uh, there were times when we kind of wanted to be able to make the collection a little bit smaller so that people could actually kind of discover the gems that are inside there. Um, But it's very difficult to convince anybody to take something out of an academic library. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this. Whereas at a public library, it's kind of very much accepted that actually, you know, the travel books will date and they won't be needed again. And that book's got kind of dated health advice and we don't want to have that or it's really right. boring. It evolves. It, it evolves constantly. Yeah. It evolves constantly. Whereas in an academic library, we would have things piled on the floor because we couldn't Whoa. take things out of the collection. Yeah. Um, and I think partly it was because there wasn't necessarily that trusted relationship between the librarians and the academic staff for the librarians to do a good job of that. But the result is that actually you kind of end up with this collection where 
nobody can necessarily find anything and the and the opportunity for serendipitous discovery is is much smaller mm. yeah. I'm interested in guy you mentioned you went to Auckland uni you understood the the jewel that was not just obviously the design around but what the library offered you as well mm. and probably you utilized it at some I, I did i I spent I mean, I've loved books for a long time, and I've spent a lot of time in the, in libraries. Um, what, one of the things that they had there was uh, a Le Cabousier chaise longue, uh, which at the time you could only buy the original when they were like $10,000 in the 1980s. They're quite expensive now. Mm-hmm. Now you can buy a knockoff for about 2000 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have one. Um, <laughs> but I used to... to and it, it, it's, it was traditionally... Um, had a, a calfskin... Um, cover to it, so it was leather, but it was, it was actually calf skin, so it was like a pony skin. And you know, it's this piece of artwork, effectively, mm. but you're allowed to sit on it. So I checked with the librarian, can I, can I sit here? And they're like, sure, go for it. So every Friday afternoon, we get new magazines in. So every Friday afternoon, I go and park myself on the chaise longue <laughs> and read all the new magazines that are coming mm. from overseas yeah. and absorb all the information that way. And um, you know, did that literally every Friday afternoon for, for about four years. Um, which was great and probably annoying to some people, but you know, it's, it's but you sit there and it's like it becomes your office. Everybody mm. knows where you are and comes and goes, and you have a chat to them as they as they yeah. pass and show them something that's just come in and all that. So that sort of it was the knowledge centre for me, mm. um, and, and it's a very stylish and comfortable chair to, to sit in. Um, nowadays, when I sit in the chair, I, I can't get out of it again. It's so comfortable, <laughs> I get wedged in there and I'm stuck flailing around like a beached whale. But um, you know, it, it's such a good spot to, mm. to, to be. So that's, again, one of those sort of memories that I have of, of that spot. And then now how you see your students interact with anything like that from a place of going, of discovery. But how, how do you see your students interacting with, like, knowledge centres? Well, it's quite weird. So Victoria's got three campuses. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's got the, the main one up at Kelvin. Yeah. It's got the one down by the law school, mm-hmm. which is called Pipitea, and it's got our one at the architecture school, which is um, Tiara. Mm. Um, and apparently ours is quite a nice library. Um, and so we get the, the BCom students from, yeah. um, from over there. They come down and they take up all the seats. So our students are like, we can't have a seat in our own library because all these bloody BCom students sitting around doing boring accounting stuff, whatever they do. <laughs> Not using any of the library because they're just yeah. there to use the free Wi-Fi right. and do their study. And they're very studious. So um, it's sort of, it's backfired a little bit. Mm. And, and I know our students get a little bit cheese off with, with the BCom students who aren't using the library but are taking up all the seats. Yeah. But there's, uh, there's always that, that side of things. I mean, I did a study into libraries uh, a few years ago, mm. which you probably know all about this. You know a lot more about this. But there was a book by um, Borges. Um, oh, uh, what's his first name? Um, you know, it's it's B O I. Jorge? Jorge Borges, yes, and um, it's so, so many G's and H's and things. Mm. But he wrote this wonderful thing about mm. the library, and uh, then there's that, and there's the, um, uh, the Name of the Rose, which was all, all centred around the, the murder mystery within the library. And what both of these had in common is the spatiality of the spaces mm. within a library. And then, of course, also the fire that consumes the library at the end and consumes all right. the knowledge with it which is obviously a, a problem with libraries. Uh, 
that you need to fight against. It's not a regular problem, but it is a problem that occurs. You know, it's you a know. risk. Quite yeah. flammable. Yes, yeah. quite flammable. <laughs> but if you have sprinklers that go off, then mm. everything gets quite damp, and then it's also unreadable. So, and, and if you gas, if you put hail on gas, then the people die and the books survive. So it's like, yeah, well, yeah. There's pluses and minuses. Yeah, you know. But uh, I, I just love the fact that there's all these these. Um, these books written about about the use of the library and, mm. and the, the numerology within the library and, and all these sorts of things. It's, you can take it on a very mystical sort of level. I don't know if you do, but I like to think of it that way. I think all the time, actually. And one, one, uh, at one point during one of my uh, stints at an academic library, we used to talk about what we would do on the different library floors uh, if it wasn't a library. So we used to kind of talk oh, about okay. what were the alternate uses of the library be, you know, both kind of with books or without books, mm. like how would you use that space? Because there's such unusual spaces in some ways, because mm. there, there's kind of, particularly public libraries, but academic libraries too, like there, there's kind of huge floor plates, um, like very, you know, you can put kind of huge amounts of weight on top of them, um, but also just uh, are often one of those public spaces that are so kind of huge that people can kind of freely move throughout mm. and it doesn't feel like there are many buildings like that around anymore. Mm. Mm. Well the, you've got the, um, the new library down in Christchurch haven't you? Tuakin? Turanga. Turanga. Mm. Um, and that's really interesting in that lots of people in Wellington have said why don't we just build one of those here? You know, we've already done that with the town hall. Like we like the town hall, can we build one of those exactly the same in Wellington? It's like yes. And now they're saying can we build that library the same, it's like, no, actually, we've already got a really good library. Mm. It's just, it needs a big refurb, which is having at the moment. Yep. But the, I went down to Turanga and ha just to have a look at the city as it was growing and, and also to have a look at the library when it opened. And I haven't been to the new um, uh, convention centre there yet, but I had a good wander around the library. Mm. And what was really interesting to me is that, you know, there was a, um, a, a session, an area where, you, where kids could use a CNC printer um, and uh, that you know they were running workshops in the afternoon for, for people and, and things like that and so bringing that sort of um, specialist knowledge that at the moment only happens within the schools of architecture or design or, or sometimes within schools if the schools have got enough money but bringing that into a public place so that anybody could come along and say I want to do a course and, and I want to make a model of whatever they make models of, um, and, and then do this in, in that sort of public space. Plus you've got that big hollowed out central space with the stairs zigzagging through it. Yes. Mm. And that's a really common uh, sort of uh, spatial organisation mm. um, thing in, in modern library design, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think I find it really fascinating to kind of hear you talk about what they were doing in there in terms of the makerspace, because it is kind of the democratisation of kind of design and making in a way that libraries were previously traditionally about the democratisation of knowledge and kind of mm. making that available. But mm. this is kind of branching libraries out into kind of an entirely different kind of area where people can then have access to that kind of stuff that they would never be able to afford to buy mm. if they were at home. You know, all these kind of massive 3D printers and laser, yeah. laser cutters and things it's, like it, that. It's learning by doing, isn't it? And so yeah. it's, it's instead, we used to be learning by reading and learning by rote learning. You know, we had to repeat everything again. Yes. Now it's the learning by doing is, has become, as you say, more democratised. Mm. Yeah. There's a bigger thing there around the idea of what you touched upon about spatiality or space and what libraries offer a city slash town slash village mm. is a communal space that's quite peculiar compared to all the other external spaces, which you could say the streets and stuff like that. Libraries still and have always been quite unique in what they offer 
is this intersection of societal class who access mm. them, right through to then the 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 breadth of it, because then you've got all the subjects. So you got you can go in very many matrices of how, who and what uses the library for. And I'm, that was one of your topics of the TEDx talk and mm. some of the stuff that you've been talking about for a long time is this dangerous idea of, I remember, so um, Lorinda, how we met was a 2016 TEDx Wellington, which I used to run. And I still remember the topic, which was the dangerous myth of libraries, mm. right? Which straight away leads you, oh, okay, tell me more. What, right? what is this myth? So could you summarize that for Because I don't think it's changed, is my point. No, I don't think it what has changed. What you spoke about then. I, it hasn't changed, I don't think. There is this kind of idea that, and a very mythologized kind of idea, that these libraries are kind of very quiet spaces. It's dusty, it's kind of lots of books, and you know, all the librarians kind of run around and kind of shush you. And there's this very strong kind of nostalgia around that. And... Sometimes I think it kind of works in our favour because that nostalgia means that actually when you say to people, you know, what should we do with the Wellington Central Library, everyone's like, you must save it or we must have our central library back. And that it kind of works really strongly in that way. But libraries have evolved into something that's so different that actually that myth also becomes uh, really detrimental to what libraries can achieve and from what people can get out of libraries mm. and the makerspace is kind of a really good example actually of yeah. kind of a way that libraries have still providing all the things that we we used to traditionally but actually it's moved on as well and it's not an either or an or but like ebooks it's mm. a both we do that and we do that and now we do this other thing as well mm. yeah. but how is that in terms of reverberated in your sector because also you spend some time as the Lianza president I did. and for those who don't know could you like because obviously people will be watching this go Lianza what's that yeah uh, but in terms of not just your turn at Lianza because I know it's like you know president-elect and then president whatever it's not just one thing um, but what's the, the the sector discussion how has that changed since you started when you said I started an academic librarianship all that together, could you respond? That was terrible <laughs> as a question. All of those things. Uh, so, Leanza is the Library and Information Association of New Zealand, Aotearoa. Uh, and, it is a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> it is a mouthful, which is why we kind of say Leanza. Um, and it was actually established, I think, originally around 1910 by an Act of Parliament. So, one of the very wow. few kinds of organisations that was established that way. Mm. And, it, and it kind of exists sort of for the enhancement, basically, of the profession and you know, of libraries in general. Um, and I think, so I've been in the profession since just on about the late 90s, so over 20 years now. Um, and I think, uh, I think there's a couple of things that have changed a lot. Uh, so I think this kind of, um, this embrace of things that are just beyond kind of the traditional library um, kind of books and newspapers and things like that. Yeah. And at the beginning of my time in libraries, things like... E-books weren't even around. Smartphone, you know, like yeah, the iPhone didn't come out until like about 2008 or something like that. It mm. feels like these things have always been here, but they haven't. Mm. And even in my very first uh, role, even at school, I mean, I still remember having card catalogs at school. I don't consider myself to be that old. Yeah. Um, but you, we, you know, still look up stuff on the car, card catalogue. Um, and so over the last 20 years, you've had this massive kind of move into the online sphere, you know, e-books and e databases and online magazines and all of those things. Um, as well as, of course, you know, Google. 
Gogol was not a thing. We were talking Ask Jeeves when I started the librarian oh, I remember Ask Jeeves. <laughs> it's going back a little bit. Yeah. And my first exposure to the internet was um, my stepfather actually worked for Mass University at the time, and so we kind of got a connection kind of through the through the university, mm. and that was kind of my first exposure to that. And so as a profession, we've kind of had this massive shift from what was basically kind of all analogue right through into kind of this digital offering that is kind of, it's the end, the end of what yeah. we do. And a bit like people kind of used to go, well, you know, um, radio will completely, you know, com- will completely die when TV comes on yeah. along. And then, you know, Sky will kind of, you know, take over television. And then you've got Netflix and you're like, actually, it's just the next thing. And everything kind of keeps evolving. Um, and so, and the other thing I think that's changed as well, probably in New Zealand context, uh, is that libraries kind of think a lot about uh, biculturalism, actually. And it's sort of something that probably in the late 90s not a lot of industries kind of thought about that a lot. Um, and actually how do we um, provide an environment which is, you know, um, that cares for Tonga and kind of is really inclusive in terms of who comes in. Because libraries, I'm going to say something controversial, because libraries are very colonial kind of institutions, actually. Um, And that's been one of the big shifts that we've seen probably over the last sort of five or six years. People are actually kind of realising there are these hugely kind of colonial institutions. Um, But how do we kind of make them fit for the 21st century and how do we respond to Manafila and how do we create that kind of sense of inclusivity? And is it our place to do that? And then how do we kind of wrangle with that? Um, so those have been hmm. Have there been really any answers to those questions? questions or even suggestions? Well, it's kind of interesting because you, uh, you end up in this conversation about how do you decolonise the library, actually. And mm. if you kind of go back hundreds of years, actually there's a lot of really kind of paternalistic um, things about the establishment of libraries, about, you know, the working man's library and let's educate the working classes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so how do you then take some of those values that we've kind of thought about as being really integral to libraries um, mm. and kind of unpack that a little bit. Fascinating, right? I think it'll take us a long time to figure that out. Even the mediums, if you think about libraries have books and these things that curate uh, knowledge and information, whereas more traditional cultural uh, approaches would have been it all oral mm. and spoken, That's historical, right. you know, passed down by the word, you know, and spoken word. And how do you capture that and keep that and in concert or different? I mean, there is a, there is a lot of truth to, to saying that libraries are, are very colonial in that it seems to be a really Pākehā thing yeah. to, to want to grab something and keep it nice and dust-free and put it in a box <laughs> and, and, and say, right, we've got one of those. You know? <laughs> and, and so, you know, when Diefenbach and Banks and all those guys were here yeah. and they were shooting, you know, if they'd see a rare bird, we'd shoot the bird and, and stick it in a box and send it off to a library yeah. or, or, a, or a museum, you know, because yeah. that's what you did. And never mind the fact that there were now no more birds, you know, yeah. that they'd, they'd shot them all. And, and the Maori are like, what is going on here? Yeah. You know, like, this precious taonga that we have, we want to live with it. You know, this represents, this is our, our father figure or whatever, you know, the carving and things. They want to have it and be able to hug it and touch it and, and all that. Mm. And the Pākehā are like, well, you can't touch it. It's in the library or the museum. You know, it yeah, needs to be in a old. box. It needs to be in a, you know, acid-free <laughs> condition. And we put some paper over it and we'll store it here. And nobody should touch it. You can, you can ask to borrow it and have a look at it. But you know, so there's that very, very different attitude towards mm. that, the same thing. Uh, one of the earliest libraries that I know of in New Zealand, um, established in about 1850, 
by William Colenso, so it's not the earliest. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were probably some earlier ones in Otago or something like this. But William Colenso Napier, and he was, he was the only white guy there. And he had his wife with him, who also came out from Cornwall. And apart from that, everybody else was Maori. And they, the local Maori gave him a piece of land, which they said is a hopeless piece of land. It's only the dwelling place for the eels. Um, so it was in the middle of a swamp. And they said, well, you know, there's a river here and a river here. You can have that little bit there. Mm -hmm. And so he built his house. Um, and he also built a library, which I always said is actually the first bicultural building in New Zealand because oh, the local wow. Maori guys built it and carved it. With, wow. Because at that stage, he was quite respected. Later, things happened, and he no longer had that respect. But he, they, anyway, they, apparently they carved this library. So was, to my mind, it's like the first bicultural thing where it's the meeting of his books and their influences in, in this little library. But then, of course, it all burnt down, and there's no records at all, no plans, no drawings, absolutely no idea what it was like, oh. except for this wow. tiny little description that it was all carved by the local Maori and, and they, it was as much theirs as mine or something, you know, so they, they had oh. built this thing. So I've always wanted to find out more about that. So if anybody out there in the <laughs> National Library has got anything away in the archives, let me know, because yeah. I'm really intrigued to find out more about that. Fascinating. Mm. But I, I think also, sorry, no, go on. there's a, the, the, the actual word library, um, can either mean the physical building mm. or the contents that it carries. Yeah. And it's very similar to, to a church in that it can be, you know, the church can be the building or it can be the contents, which in that case are normally the people and, mm -hmm. and the things that are in it. And I think that, um, I think that both in religion, that the churches have got a real problem at the moment because the, the people are moving on, but the buildings are staying there and nobody's looking after the buildings because the people are in a different church and all that sort of thing. And I think that in, in a similar way, the library, which is, um, as you say, it's morphed, it's, it's grown yeah. into many more aspects. Um, but so we've got the physical building in yeah. Wellington of, of Athfield's library. And so you get a lot of architectural people who say, we want this building to remain because it's a piece of architecture. And you get other people saying, we want something like they've got in Christchurch. And they talk about the interior and the things that go on. Mm. So there's that, that sort of um, delicate balance there. Yeah, isn't yeah. I'm interested in whether you think, like you gave the example of churches, can, a, can it really, can it be a church without people? Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, my mum still goes to a little chapel in, um, in Napier, mm. um, up on the hill, the Ormond Chapel, which was built in 1855 or something, mm. and as a schoolhouse, but it's been a church since 1870 or something like that. Um, and it's, they're down to three people. It's my mum, wow. her neighbour, and, and the reverend. You know, um, and that they only have a church service once a month, um, and you know, Mum's getting on, and her neighbour's ten years older than her. She's really oh. getting on, and and the wow. you know, the vicar has, has a young thing at only eighty or something. You know, so um, <laughs> yeah. In other words, within the next couple of years, there will be no more yeah. congregation, yeah. and so therefore, is there a church? And the church right. there is already trying to close it down, saying, "Come to the cathedral." They like, we don't want to go to the cathedral. There's a nice, warm little us. little space. Yeah. So, but when they when they go, what happens to the building? You know, and yeah. uh, what I'm worried is it'll get neglected, and somebody will toss a match at it, toss a match at it, and, and it'll go up in flames because yeah. it's all made out of cowrie and remo, and it'll be gone in five minutes. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's linger a little bit around, kind of, and segue a little a bit into your world, like oh. architecture. 
you know, your world being architecture and architectural design yeah. and space. Yeah, uh, we talked about space and stuff like that. Um, you dodged a question earlier on, which I'm coming back to. How would you describe what you do and what you exist for? I always wanted to be able to put on my passport that I'm an architect. Did, and right. I, I didn't actually register as an architect for years, so for years I had to put architectural assistant or something. Mm. And so when I got to be able to say architect on my passport, writing it in, although it's actually type. Um, yeah, and, and so even though I teach uh, and in theory I'm an academic, I still mm -hmm. feel that I'm an architect. So, mm. uh, you know, that's, that's what true passion is, is, is architecture rather than academia. And what, what, what drew you to that? What, why were you fascinated and had that hunger to be an architect? It's uh, a good question. I don't know. My uh, great-great-grandfather was an architect in, okay. in Yorkshire, um, came out to New Zealand um, in 1879 and was the architect in, uh, for the Nelson Education Board, um, okay. designed, built lots of, about 50 small schools, um, of which there's about two or three left. Wow. All of the rest of them have gone, um, and uh, so possibly I've got some something in my blood. Yep. Um, but no, I've just always liked buildings and 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 designing things and and getting them built. And um, I'm really very boring because I really only do architecture. In my spare time, I do architecture. In my day job, I do architecture. <laughs> and when I go to bed at night, I dream about architecture. And then you write about architecture. Yeah, yeah. so that's it, so tediously dull. But that, that's that's what I am. Sorry. However, though, there's been a massive shift, just like in libraries and architecture the last couple of years, because there's little things like sustainability has crept in mm. and understanding about uh, well-being and you know, city living and, and the concept of having enough light and all these other things, which probably maybe was thought about a lot longer ago, but it felt like these are new disciplines that really are shifting architecture a lot, some of them. How would you kind of look back on your career then, since you've always wanted to be that, where you are now and and the students that you teach so they have the same type of topic hunger than you did when you were younger i don't know that the students do nowadays okay. that, um when we ask the students why are you doing this then mm. sometimes they they're like ah oh, you know i've always had a passion for it but you know if you ask them about their favorite architect they don't know any architects or, okay. or they, they will inevitably say Frank Lloyd Wright because it's the one architect they've heard of and, and things like that. I, so, and, and maybe I was, I was um, as dumb when I was a student. <laughs> um, I probably was. I, was. I was probably a horrible student. But uh, I, I think that uh, it, the, you know, the passion goes on mm. for, for quite a long way. But it, one of the things that I didn't get until later in my career was understanding that architecture is about the design of the space. So the building comes next. You put the building around the space. So you have right. to design the space in your head. Okay. And you don't really get that in a standard New Zealand house, you know, where everything's a 2.4 high ceiling and, uh, you know, you've got a bathroom and a kitchen and a living room and some bedrooms and maybe a hallway. And that's, that's your space and you can jiggle them around a bit, but most of the time they're, they're, you know, you're in the same uniform piece of space and there's nothing really terribly exciting about, about that. So I think a lot of people, in New Zealand have got no concept of internal space because right. all they have is, is just this slice and, and that's it. Mm. And when we, a few years ago, we used to hold a thing called uh, Architecture Week uh, back in 2005 and things like that. We yeah. ran it to try and get access into internal, um, both look at the outside, but also into interesting buildings around Wellington. Mm. So we, you know, one year, 
Uh, this is all organised by Christine McCarthy at the Architecture Week. Um, and so that we went into uh, churches one year and then we went into public buildings another year and things mm. like that. But when I've been to a similar thing in, in Britain where they have, and it's been going in Europe for a number of years. And of course the internal spaces over there are amazing. Mm. And so you know, we don't have that many really interesting or really big or really complex internal spaces in New Zealand because mm. we're a small, poor, relatively poor country with, you know, you've probably got some great spaces down in, in Otago where they've got some grand buildings. Mm. In Wellington there's not much. Mm. And the library was one, you know, that was a really interesting, great internal space. The, the um, city gallery next mm. to it is, mm. is also an interesting sort of space. But most of, the, most of our public buildings don't have any great deal of public space. And I think mm. that, that's one of the things that really excites me about a building is, is when, there's, when you're playing around with space. Mm. And you know the staircases going through it, and climbing up, and lifts, and everything, and it gets to be a, a really dynamic. I don't know what it is, and I've tried to study it and to try and figure out how it all works. Um, but you sort of have to. The architect has to conceive all that in their head yeah. and on paper, and then eventually produce a set of drawings so the builders can build it, and then that space is created. But even the challenge around the language you use is about space, not the buildings. Yes, has challenged me to conceptualise architecture in a very different way, which is fantastic for the first thing. But then I wanted to come back and go, well, we've also had a huge, just like the libraries and what you were describing, mm. went from an analog to a digital kind of modality almost, right? Same with architecture, right? And as you know, I'm involved a little bit with Tulo and the MC and I do it there and I get the brush up. Uh, so Tulo is an architectural kind of professional development mm. offering. Every month I MC online uh, Tula Talks where we have architects around the world and I get to ask questions on behalf of the audience through them. So I'm exposed to the language and, and mm. around parametric architecture and stuff like that. I get to see this wonderful use of digital technologies that is expanding their toolkit, I suppose, but also the concept of space and building uh, that's what I think it does mm. anyway, but I'm a layman, <coughs> so forgive me. Um, but I'm wondering, really, I'm interested in your take on how digital technologies, software programs, and the approaches of the Zaha Hardys of this world, the BIGs and stuff like that, who use technology at the core to drive what it now looks like. Does, have they got that kind of right in terms of space and versus building, or what's your response to the technology then? Yeah, look... look uh, those two companies you, you talked about are, are absolute brilliant at, at uh, manipulation of space. Zaha especially was, uh, was a, just a dream in, in terms of what she could do. Mm. Uh, probably a nightmare in terms of the client often. Um, yeah. But you know, I've been to her, um, her gallery uh, XXIV or something in Rome, um, which hardly anybody knows about. It hasn't had much, much press. You have to go down to the end of the number 24 tram line and... and in, in Rome, because um, okay. you can't even find it on a tourist map. But when you get there, it's this amazing Zaha who did um, building with these you know, giant sweeping staircases and things. And it consumed a vast amount of money. Mm. Um, and it's got some great art in it. Uh, but you know, it hasn't had the 24 million tourists a year it needs to make a profit. You know, so right. it's all, whatever it is, you know, it, it's, uh, so it's a bit of a, a drain on the finances. And they were even talking about closing it down because they couldn't afford to keep it open. Huh. Uh, and probably over COVID, it probably has closed, I would suspect. Mm. I don't know if it's reopened yet. Okay. But so the, but the spatial games she was playing there were just incredible. Yeah. Um, so that both the building, you know, it was almost like a building that had been turned inside out. It's not mm. 
like anything you may have seen before. Um, yeah, the part of the inside sort of went out here, and then the stair went through the middle, and you know, all of these sorts of <laughs> things that were going on. It was really quite exciting space, mm. and um, Zaha had that ability to, to warp space and, and do things both in her in her drawings um, and and finally in the build in the finished mm. design. So for years she didn't get anything built because people couldn't figure out what it was she was showing. Or Which is where the technology comes in. Yeah, right? yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The technology and and. And the people to to run it. So she teamed mm. up with a guy called Schumacher, uh, who was not the racing car driver, right. but um, another German. Uh, yeah, another German, Patrick Schumacher. Very um, a little bit controversial, but really obviously good on the tech tools. And I've now got an office full of you know, 100 people or so, all of whom can do that. Mm. But uh, I don't think Zaha was good at that herself. But she could, she had the, yeah. the mental nous to be able to do that. So it has been driven definitely now a lot by the technology, but. I'll just come back to one point, which is about the space, because I, I did my thesis on on um, circulation within space a few years back. Mm -hmm. And one of the, sorry, I'm talking too much, but I'll get back to you in a second, because one of the interesting things to me is that there isn't obviously one definition of the word space. So if you mm -hmm. go and look at it, and so I looked in a large dictionary, and it gave me, I think, 23 definitions of the word space as a noun, and 15 of space as a verb. So... Yeah, so okay, when you no, say no. you think you know what we're talking about, because of course space is the one thing we can't see. You know, we're sitting in a space. <laughs> um, outside there's more space. Yes. In between us there's another space. There's also a space between this word and this word. So yeah. space exists in time as well as in in, in place. But <laughs> so we're in a, we're in a, we're in a place. But nobody has ever seen space, you know, mm. because we look through it. So it's, it's the most difficult thing. <coughs> and so I, I often think that people are speaking past each other when they're talking about space. Mm. And a lot of people won't understand what an architect is talking about when they're talking about space, because mm. some people will be thinking of outer space and spaceships, and other people you know, will be thinking of space in, in one of those yeah, very, very many other contexts. So uh, it's, it's really uh, it's a difficult thing to tie down. And there's a lot of the theory about spatial design, which comes from the French, um, uh, what do we call them, situationists? Um, Henri Lefebvre and uh, uh, Gilles and Deleuze and, and people like okay. that, which will mean things to people in the architectural world and uh -huh. to nobody else. And uh, so they're writing in French about espace, and it gets translated into English as space, and everybody thinks, oh, I know what you're talking about. But I'm sort of my argument is well, they were talking about possibly about space in one form, yeah, and of course. what what we are thinking about may not be the same space they were thinking about that. Mm. So, Henri um, Lefebvre, sorry, Henri wrote this uh, book called The Production of Space, um, and it's all about the fact that if you create a building, in other words, you create a space, then then it's 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 a political political act. Mm. And so uh, the space itself is, is a political animal. So, and, and so then you get people talking about queer space, or you know, uh, the street is all full of Germans, so that's a German space. Right, yeah. The street's full of Italians. So you know, well, that's you get, a government building. And yeah, governmental places. space, uh, and then you get public space and private mm -hmm. space and all these sorts of things. So this, you know, it, for something that isn't there, it's amazing how much you can spend arguing about <laughs> about what it is or what it isn't or what it's defined by. I was so, I was interested when you said it, but you did a thesis on circularity of space. Did you? Yeah. That, like I suppose our people. Well, it was, yeah, it was, traverse it was, space is that? Yeah. Right. How? 
you, you know, you get something like Te Papa as a yep. museum, which a lot of people bag and a lot of people don't like Te Papa, mm. um, but they're normally just arguing about it from the outside and they don't like the look of it from the outside. Yeah. But to me, it's actually it's the inside, which is the real conundrum, because mm. that's a very complex space. Yep. And uh, people get lost there all the time, mm. uh, can't find things, which is, in Tababa's case, it's actually part of the intention. It was designed to have a difference between the Pākehā grid, city grid side and the Māori side, and it's got this big wall through the middle, and circulation is here, and the space is there, and it gets quite confusing. And, and to me, that's more of a problem, okay. spatially. And I suppose it, it kind of loops back in with the library spaces and how intentional libraries can be because historically they were quite rigid because they were just bookshelves. So you come in, but I'm aware of lots of other new libraries <coughs> that are designed to be more discovering mm. modes of. Yeah, am I? Yes, right. you are definitely on the right track. <laughs> well, and it's been really interesting listening to you talk about space because obviously we're working on the Central Library, Wellington Central Library building, and so you have this existing envelope and what you are trying to do inside the building is go, is how do we then shape the spaces inside of this mm. existing envelope? And one of the conversations we had really early on is when you're thinking about how people move around that building, are you creating a space where it is easy for people to move around? Or are you trying to create that kind of mall effect where, you know, people kind of discover stuff because actually they're sort of led on a dance through the building and actually it's not necessarily, um, you know, always easy to figure out how to kind of come in or out. Are you kind of trying to discover that act of discovery by leading people very deliberately through a certain route? Mm. Or actually is getting from point to point kind of the most important thing? And in some ways the answer is both because... You want people to have that experience of the building and the experience of what's in there, yeah. and you want to try and encourage people to uh, to discover things that they might not otherwise want to discover, but without frustrating them, because yeah. otherwise, they, you know, it's going to become a bit like that to Papa experience. And, oh, I don't really like that building. Always get lost. Yeah. <laughs> or Always I can't get find lost. what I was looking for. That's mm. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Where are we at with the discussion around? So, for those who are watching and going, Wellington Library, blah blah blah. We live in the capital city of Wellington. We had a little bit of an issue with our central library when it was discovered that it wasn't fit for purpose, I think is a nice way of putting it. And it shut down and then people were like, that's our library. Yeah. It was what wonderful to see the <laughs> amount of people concerned about it. I like that, you know, from that perspective. It was, a, it was an obvious attraction from a perspective of not when attracting people, but it was like, look, that's my space. That was they felt connected to it, even though they might not have visited op- often. So, how 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 did you feel when all that kicked off, and where are we at with it all? Do you know, and how what's your involvement with it? <laughs> yeah. Tell me all the things. Oh my gosh, interesting question. Yeah, I might just make one comment about the space actually, yeah, because yeah. one of the things that happened when we closed that building. So, I mean, the building's enormous. It's about 14,000 square metres inside. Um, And one of the things that we realised when we closed that building, we set up kind of a series of sort of pop-up kind of temporary libraries in the Mm -hmm. CBJ. And one of the things that we realised quite early on, even before we'd started to do that, is there are certain kinds of spaces that you can't replicate. 
And okay. so, for example, uh, the number of spaces that there were for teens to kind of go and just hang out, um, because the Reading Cinema in town had closed a few years before that, which was the other big kind of massive open space where teens hang out, hung out besides the library had also mm. closed. And there was no other big kind of public space where teens could do that. And it was about the same for a homeless community as well. It's like you can't kind of, you know create a little spot in the CBD and kind of go, can all the homeless people kind of, can you all hang out over there? Like, that's not how that works, because actually the library brings together those elements of space about, you know, it's kind of free, it's warm, but it's also public, and you are together with other people, but without necessarily the attention kind of being all on you, and it's very difficult kind of thing to replicate in any other sort of space. Mm. So we, the closure of the Central Library was not only kind of the loss of the books, but also for lots of people, the loss of the space. You know, where do I go when I've got some time between meetings or I'm self-employed, where do I go? Uh, And so where we are at uh, is that uh, the entire building is currently pretty much all stripped out in the interior and they've started drilling big holes in the floor, uh, kind of in anticipation of putting in base isolation. So... Okay. There will be, they'll put kind of a big rattle space around the edge of the building at ground level and they'll put base isolation in the building and then the whole thing will kind of be filled with, uh, with K-braces basically to make it incredibly kind of yeah. strong during, during an earthquake. And so the stage that we're at uh, is actually is, is a library um, and the other residents who will be going in there as well is to mm. kind of go, well, we know we're going to have this amazing kind of space back uh, it'll be a bit more constricted than it was because we will have you know, lots of kind of additional architectural elements. Um, but then how do we kind of fill that space? How do we, course, how do yeah. we recreate spaces? And then how do we also create new spaces that people might want into the future? Because when you think back about that building, it was opened in 1991. So actually it wasn't even 30 years old when it closed. Um, but already things had moved on so far, mm. even in those 30 years. Like we didn't have enough PowerPoints, for example, because nobody anticipated that everyone would have a laptop, you know, of when that course, building first yeah. opened. So lots of those kinds of things. So trying to think about and anticipate, which is probably almost an impossible task, how will this building be used into the future? Mm. Yeah. It's a fascinating problem or challenge. Yeah. To it's, re- a, it's a fabulous problem to have yeah. in some ways. And that recognition that... Uh, the building will probably open in 2026, so we're still right. a few years even away from it opening. Yeah, of course. Trying to anticipate not only opening day, but kind of what happens mm. beyond that. And so we think about things like, uh, one of the conversations we had was, you know, would you have an AI helper who will kind of help you at the door and help you direct, help direct you? Mm. Like, if you ask that question in 2022, yeah. people would probably go, yeah, I'm not quite ready for that. If you ask that question in 2030... Actually, the answer might be quite different. Yeah. So it's trying not to cut off any of those possibilities of what might mm-hmm. happen in the future just because we're not quite ready for it now. But are you looking at what uh, Guy was referencing in terms of the Christchurch Library and, and the space inside and stuff like that? Not the physical, I suppose, elements mm-hmm. like the staircases things because you still will have the similar floor plan or you're yeah. ripping the floor? Yeah, some of the basic stuff all kind of stays cool. the same. Yeah. But it's more about... Are you keeping the escalators? We are keeping the escalators, but interestingly, on the staircase, we are adding in an additional staircase into the north part of the building, yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of help with the circulation, Mm. but also to bring in the natural light through into that part of the building as well. It was previously a very dark part of the building. Mm -hmm. Um, And looking at things that, 
uh, actually kind of got engineered out of the first iteration of the building because there wasn't enough money. So actually putting mm. back in some of the glazing that was meant to be on the outside to bring more light okay. into the building. Yeah, so it, it's, you know, it will end up being, you know, a listed building. Um, but actually some elements of it might be more close to what were originally intended architecturally than they actually were in the first iteration of the building. Are they still keeping the, the sort of concrete precast panels on the the Victoria Street facade? Or is the they, moment, they haven't shown yes. any pictures of that? At the moment, yes. Okay, yeah. uh, I think the outside will look pretty similar mm-hmm. to what you had before. Mm-hmm. Um, but there will definitely be more more light, more windows and more glazing kind of coming through. I think that Victoria Street entry is always uh, is always been... It's kind of amazing and it's very kind of grandiose, but it also kind of engenders a bit of that threshold fear that people have about libraries as yeah. well. Mm. And so one of the things that's in the new design is actually there will be three other entrances into that building that we didn't ah. previously have. Okay. Yeah, which brings its own kind of challenges and, mm. uh, and yeah, opportunities with that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, you really get to kind of create completely, kind of recreate what it is to some mm. degree. Yeah, I wondered if structurally that... that that side was too stiff and the other side is the curvy glass and so I wondered if if the engineers were saying we've got a, you know, a very asymmetric building, we've got this uh-huh. very, very stiff side and this effectively completely open side because it's just glass yeah. and, it's, and it's wobbly and you can't get anything stiff there. Mm. So that they not, normally like to have something stiff on each side and each end Yes. and so you've got all the stiffness on that side and so that's probably why you're putting in lots of X braces yeah, lots of those over braces. there I suspect right. because yeah. they need to even it up. And that edge of the building, that kind of what we kind of call the wavy wall, the wavy which faces wall. out towards the sea, is actually meant to represent the water at the edge. So you kind of have yes. the urban face, which faces out towards the city, Makes and sense. the glazed kind of wavy wall that because they faces got the water out to the water. Actually going there anyway, yeah. Pools yeah. behind the art gallery, which replicates some connection to the sea as well. There are so many things in that building. <laughs> yeah, there are so many things in that building that are actually um, that are really a connection. Uh, to the sea as well, and mm. it's only through this project that we've kind of realised some of them. You know, some of it was kind of lost over the years, but uh, you know, um, Ian Ethfield did kind of work with Manafina about some of those aspects of the building, and so actually, even the little side tables were meant to be kind of reminiscent of rock pools and things like that. You know, the design of the carpet was kind of meant to be reminiscent of what you might sort of see on the sea floor. Right. So there's kind of this huge um, embedding of meaning within the building, mm. and so now as we're trying to kind of redesign what it is, trying to keep some of that meaning, yeah. but also working with Mana Whenua about what do you want this place to be now, mm-hmm. actually. Recognising that the heritage of this building, the heritage of this place didn't start in 1840, actually. There's hundreds of years of heritage before that. Yeah. So how do you then reflect that through the building that you're creating? Yeah. yeah. Mm. L- lovely challenge to have. <laughs> it's fascinating. And in some ways you could do so many things. Mm. So how do you actually kind of narrow it down to the things yeah. you're actually going to do? Mm. And there's a huge weight of expectation too about the what they might look waiting, like. Right? The city is waiting. And lots of people, you know, they love the very traditional library and they love the dark little corners and yeah. the packed in shelving. Um, and we will still have lots of books, but we won't have that. Fascinating. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about kind of COVID because of its impact on both your sectors in the last couple of years. We would have had an impact, I would imagine. Uh, we had Paula Escott here a couple of years, a year ago and talking about kind of her small library down in mm. 
Christchurch and how they activated as being part of the community. We've had educators here talking about how they had to transition into hybrid teaching mode. Uh, when before they certainly wasn't doing that. It, mm. it wasn't a discussion, you had to do that. So how has COVID, COVID affected both your practice in terms of what you do? Well, for, for me, it's had, had quite a big effect. Um, mm. So last term I had a class of uh, 55, uh, of whom three or four came to, came to school, to, to the lecture. So I got right. to know those three or four very well, and everybody else was online. Um, and not necessarily live online, so it was going out live online. Right. Some of them would just watch them later so they could forward through the lecture at double speed or triple speed. Because uh -huh. apparently I speak too slowly and clearly. <laughs> so they speak it all up. So, it goes back. so that was annoying. And what you do this a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 make it like, look like an yeah, idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but so that, 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 was, that was quite weird, being in a lecture right. theatre for 150 people and talking to three. three yeah. uh, mm. And so that was... Uh, but anyhow, we've got a new term which starts on Monday, so in right, yeah. five days' time or something. And I've got no idea whether students are going to turn up in person oh. um, or if they're all going to stay at home again. I don't know. And how, is, how do you find that? Like, do you think it impacts on your teaching style specifically or does it impact on the learning communication I, I you think, would get? Yeah, I mean, my, my style is, is, if I have a teaching style, it's, very, it's normally very chatty and conversational. Yeah. Um, and I try and you know, engage the students, get them to reply, and they hate that because they just want to <laughs> shrink away and, and not have this horrible hairy man do it, try and engage in a conversation. You look at them and they, they look away. And I was like, don't look at me. Like, I'll pretend that I didn't see it. I'll, you know, I'll look at my watch, anything, rather than, oh, my God, he's looking at me again. Um, so yeah, I, I confront them daily by, by, by giving them the old eyeball yes, and, 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 trying, to get, and trying to get them to reply. And, and that's a real battle for me. And maybe they hate it, and maybe I'm really bad because of that. But that's the bit that I quite like, is actually getting mm. them to en engage with me. Um, but so you can't do that when they're online, because they all have their cameras turned off. So there's just a, a Zoom screen with lots of little black squares and sometimes their names on them. Mm. And, oh. and they never speak, and you've got no idea what they're doing. They're mostly picking their nose and scratching their bum. Maybe taking some notes. Who knows? Mm. Yeah. No idea. They don't turn their camera on. Or even sitting there with their minds being blown. Yeah, well, that would be... this knowledge flowing into them. It would be great if they said, hey, guy, my mind is being blown. But no, <laughs> we, we have no idea what, what they're taking. So I think the learning experience for them is very much less. Um, right, but yeah. I think that they, in a way they might like it more because they don't have to get dressed. They don't have to go out in the cold weather. They can stay at home in their bed and eat popcorn and, and watch a video and, and maybe take it in. Mm. Uh, and we've got no data on any of this so far. So Yet, right? We, yeah. Because in the next couple of cycles, and yeah. in academic cycles, yeah. there might be a telling yeah. data trend, yeah. whatever that might indicate. It might mm. be weirdly up, you never know. Or it could be weirdly down and we kind of know why. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that, that's the things, you know, we don't know what's happening yeah. yet. And, yeah. But there's, I think there's no doubt, obviously, that students' learning patterns have changed dramatically over the last five years and especially the last two years. Yeah. But you know, students don't need to remember things anymore. Um, we don't really have exams at the architecture school. We sometimes have a test, but mostly it's about drawn things. So if they have mm. you know, a, a, a drawn, they do some plans and submit the plans and, and things like that. Um, but if they have a question, they don't need to remember it. They just ask Google. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you tell them to go and read a book, they just Google the book. Uh, if they can't find it, they'll Google it some other book. 
um, and they get an answer, which is plucked out of the ether from somewhere. Mm. And so the good thing is, if they get the right book, then they, um, they're plucking something useful out of the ether. But of course, the, as we all know now, the, the internet is filled with a load of crap out there and people writing complete rubbish. And Google presents them all as viable options. Yeah. And so you can say, well, this site says I should do this. So they, they, they quote that site and, or, or just grab a bit of it and, and start working on it. And they have no idea whether that's at all appropriate or sort of an approved way of doing things or whatever. So there's a lot of, a lot of misinformation that the students are sucking up as much as they're sucking up the new information, which is why I wrote the books that I've written, yeah. to basically try and get some good quality information from sources that I know are true and reliable and putting it all together and saying, this is, this is what you should be doing. Mm. Ignore all those other things that you're finding on the internet because they're all wrong. Right. Um, okay. And, um, and that, that's still the problem that I have every year. We'll find out if I have that same problem in three days' time. Well, yeah, and that's the problem with education, I suppose, is that you have to be educated to be, be discerning. And what you're talking about is discernment, is essentially, is knowing credibility or credible sources yes. and discerning between the other. Yeah. Right? But you can't do that unless you're educated or have experience. So you have to go through this formula, which yeah. is called school or university yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So you, you get things, just as, as a very brief example, say um, if I ask students to, to look at a, at a junction of a steel beam and a steel column, mm -hmm. and I've shown some examples in my books of what happens with a steel beam and a steel column and how it might be joined together. Right. But if the students go and Google it, they'll find a picture which almost inevitably will be from something that was scanned from 1950 or 1930, mm -hmm. And so they'll come up with these pictures and they'll say, well, this is what you do. Which is completely wrong because nobody's done it that way for 70 years. Um, and so they're like, ta-da! Yeah. And I'm like, D, sorry, <laughs> no. And they're like, but why? You know, it's like you didn't read my book. You read something off the internet, which is wrong. The internet is wrong so many times. And so there's very little good information on the internet unless you know exactly where to find it. It doesn't hit sure. number one on, on the Google um, search page and things like that, page rank. So. I feel like we've come around full circle to the conversation of weeding again. You know, like we were talking about weeding the library. It's like, yeah. no one weeds the internet. No. You know, you've still, you've still got the scan book from 1950. People are going to think that that yeah. is right. And the Google Gutenberg project dis digitalizing all old texts yeah. so there's now metadata can be searched much readily and it comes up to the yeah. top of the search or, criteria, but it's old. But also, good quality information is now yeah. behind a paywall. So there yeah, is good, good, point. good quality information on the internet, mm. but you have to pay for it. And no student is ever going to go and pay you know, $20 for a download a PDF which might have the right information. They're just going to be like, oh, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Um, and neither do I. I don't want to do that either. I don't know who wants to pay $20 for a download of a PDF. But I was, came yeah. across one last night and it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So you go and find something free. But yeah. the free thing is, is not as good as the, mm. as the quality thing which is locked up. So that's a real problem for, mm. in, for information really, isn't it? It's a huge problem, yeah. and I don't think that people realise the depth of information and the amount of information that is literally sitting out there behind a paywall yeah. that can't be searched through, you know, that can't be found, can't be no. accessed, can't be searched through Google. So like academic journals and papers yeah. and things like that, which yeah, are always exactly. hidden. It's, not hidden. It's kind of 90% actually of probably what's on the web is stuff that is, Google is not going to bring up actually, because right. it is, it's either kind of paywalled or it's kind of deep within databases and things like that that Google is not going to kind of find for you. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, there's a, a huge, I mean, you know, I kind of feel as though that kind of mis-disinformation, it's kind of a, 
you know, it's a, it's a thing that society as a whole is struggling with. Yeah, well, information wants to be free, doesn't it? Yeah, well... And as the saying goes. Yeah, yeah, as long as... But as long as it's the right information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And often it's not, you know. Yeah, good yeah. point. And if you look for a picture of, uh, say, the Grand Canal in Venice, um, and five or ten years ago, if you looked for a picture of the Grand Canal, you would find lots of pictures, and you could... You could say, well, that's the Grand Canal, and you could keep that picture and whatever. If you go there now, they're nearly all, um, they've, they've got watermarks across them, so you can't use them. Um, and they're owned by various organisations. Either Getty Images yeah. owns a lot, um, but there's also a lot um, from a couple of dodgy organisations. I don't think people understand this. There's, um, there's a Russian organisation that, that owns the company that owns a lot of the images. Huh. And so it says, you know, if you want to use this image... I can't remember what the company is, but uh, the, it's actually owned by, um, by a, you know, an oligarch somewhere right. in, in, in Russia who's getting money when you pay them to, to use the image uh, of the Grand Canal, which is a public space, and anybody should be able to take a photo. And, mm. But they're like, no, these are really nice photos, and so yeah. we're going to charge a lot of money. And if you want to use it without the money, mm. then it's, we're going to destroy it by having these horrible watermarks all over it. So that's, that's, that, to me, is a, is a real problem. And virtually yeah. every... Mm. If, if you go to a Google page now, uh, virtually every image of a, of a really well-known place will be a private image that you have to pay to use, mm. um, and uh, which just shouldn't be happening. And it's, yeah. uh, but it's the Google thing, because they pay money to Google to have them elevated right. in the rankings, yeah. so that's all you see. So you actually need to go to the 150th page on Google and find <laughs> the, the, the cheap ones, or the free yeah. ones. Or go to Unsplash, which yes. is a great free site, anyway. So we're getting it. Actually, there's a big role for libraries here because I know the libraries have got very deeply involved with like creative, not deeply, but mm. they're great with Creative Commons ideas yeah. and Creative mm. Commons licensing and yeah, helping people right. find data that they can then incredibly use, whether it be images or other sources, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but we didn't also fire the COVID question to you. COVID, yes. Like how, is, how did that impact the library services across New Zealand and in Wellington, specifically? I think, I think a couple of things happened. One was that, obviously, we kind of pivoted everything to, to online. Mm -hmm. And so we did online story times, and um, we encouraged people to use e-books. Um, and things like the usage of e-books has kind of come up, and it stayed up. So people right. like it, they've kind of discovered it, and they want to keep going. Um, the thing that has kind of changed like a couple of years in, I'm not going to say because it's not over, a couple of years in is that the number of people who are kind of coming in is still not the same as it used to be. People are right. still really wary about coming in. But the number of items that people might take out are still kind of re relatively high. So people make fewer visits, but they grab more stuff. Because who <laughs> knows when I'm going to be in home isolation again. <laughs> Wow, so kind of, of course, yeah, they're thinking ahead. And I think it has really, I think it has changed also the way that we think about kind of delivering services. So, you know, we always have in the back of our minds, actually, what if this physical event doesn't go ahead? What's our backup plan for yeah. running this kind yeah. of thing online? Um, and as we're kind of thinking about, you know, the refurbishment of the central library, external holds pickups, for example. You know, if you can't physically come into the building or you're not well or, you know, as we've had recently, if you're not vaccinated, actually, what's your option to pick mm -hmm. up some stuff from the library? Yeah. What are we putting in in terms of kind of the, the ventilation inside the building and how often does the fresh air come through? Because this is not possible. This pandemic could go on for a long time and who knows kind of what comes after that. And so you're kind of 
you are kind of taking a different lens than you probably would have in terms of um, kind of public health and how we think about we, how we arrange those spaces and how we, you know, provide, can we provide drive-through routine slots for people so they don't even have to get out of their car. They can just kind of drive through the basement, post the books in. So all of those things, they're not things that we necessarily would have thought about before yeah. because it was not exclusively about the physical service, but almost always about mm. the physical building and being in the physical building and collecting the physical things. Yeah, and now it's transitioned and it's stayed in that probably mindset yeah. as well. I think it's, it's shifted the mindset of both people who use the library, yeah. but also the people who work in libraries as well. They are thinking much more about how will this work yeah. if no one can physically come to this building anymore. But your title is Manager of Libraries and Community Spaces. Yes. So the community spaces aspect of your title and obviously operations, yeah. are they libraries or are they different again? They're different again. So, so community centres, um, community centres and a community hall I've got as mm. well. Um, and right. so okay. they are really places that the community can kind of come in yeah. and either we will kind of put on kind of programming um, or often the community are hiring spaces for things that they want to do, which is runs the gamut from toy libraries um, right through to um, I'm a dance teacher and I want to teach a dance class to five-year-olds on a Saturday morning. So it gotcha. kind of, yeah, is the whole kind of range of community things. And that's across and Wellington City? Yes, across Wellington City. And how many were we in size? And, uh, across Wellington City, there's a, a lot of those centres who are also run by kind of community organisations. There's probably about 40, I think, throughout the oh. entirety of, of okay. Wellington. Uh, and it's been, you know, for some of those organisations, it's been quite a tough time because, mm. you know, lots of... Not all, but many of the people who use those spaces kind of fall into vulnerable categories as well. So, you know, you have right. a lot of people who, you know, might hire the space to play bridge on a Thursday night every week. And actually those people are just, you know, they're not coming anymore. So the challenge mm. for, for our teams are about how do you kind of engage with those people and how do you encourage them to come back in when it is safe to do so. Mm. And one of the roles that we kind of increasingly found for some of our centres um, was actually just checking in on people. So there was, a, you know, there's a really close mm. relationship that's built a lot of the time with those community centres because you have a, a small group of very local people who come in. Um, and actually, you know, some of us, they were ringing people up, like, how are you? Are you okay? Do you need a food package? Yeah. You know, like, there's a, there's a really kind of close mm. sense of connection mm. there with those people. Can any, any space be a community space? Like, does it have to be built as a community space? No. Or could it be like, oh, we did use this for X, but anybody could use it yeah. in theory. And then... We, so many, we have so many converted houses. <laughs> right. We are, it used to be a house, and they're like, ah, this was part of the lounge room once. Strip <laughs> it out. Now we're doing yoga class on it. Right. So almost anything can kind of be turned into a community space to some degree. Right. And I think... Part of the interesting th thing for me, because when I came into this role, I'd never managed community spaces before, um, was that increasing kind of language over the last decade about how libraries are community spaces. And so mm. you kind of have this crossover between what is kind of being considered pure community centre, perhaps, or community hall, and then the libraries um, and what are the activities that happen in those spaces. And increasingly, they're not so different, actually. Mm. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. I wonder what the challenge would be around architecting a community space versus something else. You know, like you said, space is the important bit, which I suppose comes back to the human activity within the space. Yeah, 
is crucial as a design brief, in inverted commas. But yeah, well, the, the, you know, in, in the way that a church space is designed around the sound that can come out of it. So right, it's designed, yeah. you know, often with stone or uh, mm. stone versus wood. You get a very different sound in a church, mm. but it's designed with a large volume, so you get a, a big reverberation time. So the notes hold longer and the music sounds better and things. Mm. If you tried to play. Um, you know, organ music in a residential house, it would sound awful, yeah. um, both inside and outside, probably. You know, <laughs> the house would be throbbing. <laughs> but, but, you know, if you do it in a big stone church or something, then it, the mm. notes echo, and it's all that sort of beautiful thing. In a similar way, I guess, the, um, the library space is, has traditionally been designed around light. Um, so ah, until... Well, of course, yeah. Um, you know, electric lights and things are very much a recent thing, and as, as Warhecht's <laughs> so I still can't say that name. You know, the problem with a traditional library is that if you had a, you know, a wax candle or something and you're reading something, you set fire to the library and the whole yeah. lot goes up. But so traditional libraries would have had uh, you know, windows facing probably uh, away from the sun because you don't want direct sun coming yeah. in, but you want that, that light, which in New Zealand, the south light. Um, and so you'd have a, you know, everybody would be sitting next to a window, not facing the window, but next to a window so you get the light coming in on the page. Mm. And so it meant that buildings couldn't be that big as libraries. Um, so you get something like the um, Glasgow School of Art um, Library by um, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, which was, had this wonderful um, space inside, but it was designed you know, so you could have these little wooden cubicles. You could sit there and read something right. in the freezing Glasgow um, yeah. winter and still get really good um, light on the books of, of what you're reading. Um, and you know, there are little lights way up in the, in the sky. But again, technology has gone away with that because of yeah. lights and yeah. everything else. So, and, and most people read things off their laptops, so that, that's a completely yeah. different way of, of looking at things. You know. Uh, yeah. But you know, to me, it's, it's nothing quite like having a, a table that's specially set up for, uh, for reading a book. Uh, you know, slight mm -hmm. lean, so you can turn the pages and have the light washing in and be in a nice, comfy you know, chair mm -hmm. that sort of wraps you around on three sides and uh, you know, all that, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, the, the light thing, I never thought about that. Nor had I, interestingly. Okay. Even as somebody who mm. has worked in libraries their whole life. Even you saying kind of that the churches are built around the sound. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, and I guess the, so the other major sense, probably, that spaces are designed around is that restaurants are designed around smells and tastes. Mm. And, uh, you know, you want to have something where you can get that, you know, do this and yeah. Yeah. the smells coming into your... Well, the kitchen you know, wafts through. through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, whereas most of our spaces now are very much industrialised. So you go into a supermarket, you know, it's, it's well, horrible, lighting, horrible lighting, <laughs> yeah. terrible sound. Um, and they are pumping smells <laughs> in and, and, to make you feel yeah, and things yeah. rather than naturally yeah. creating it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, some of your publications, but your most recent one, which is very recent, right? Yes. The, the book tall. I know Tall was the first one. Oh, the, sorry. The, the recent one is Medium. That's Yes, yeah. with the medium density housing. Yeah. Sorry, I got it the wrong way around. No, no, that's okay. So. But I was interested in, uh, because this lands squarely with uh, the both the tall and the medium density, because that's quite pertinent at the moment with some of the mm. regulations that I understand are coming out. Yes. Uh, or the discussions around changing certain things. Uh, but also the tall one, because Wellington City Council and some other people have got together and decided on kind of setbacks and 
could you describe all the kind of what I'm talking about there in, in more of an educational approach in terms of why should we be concerned with both not how tall our buildings are in the cities we live in, but also the way that they're built tall? Well, this is a real bugbear of mine. I could go mm. on like this for hours, but I, <laughs> I promise you all that I won't. Um, but so the, the thing is the government got uh, annoyed that there wasn't enough land being provided for housing. Yeah. Some people are saying you need to just abolish all the rules so that housing can just spread out and anybody that can buy a piece of land can build a, a house. Ideologically, they don't want to do that because then that means people driving in cars out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, Wellington, we're quite lucky in a way because we're so confined. Yeah. There is virtually no other land. So if you want to build your house anywhere else, you have to go up the coast to Kapiti yeah. or up the coast of the Wairap, up the Wairapa line. So those areas are, are growing frantically. Wellington isn't growing very much because we don't have any more land. All the land we have is hilly or on the other side of the harbour, which we can't get to. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the council ha hadn't sort of said, well, you know, you can, you can build more. So very slowly, the council had been saying, okay, we think you can build some more down Adelaide Road, where we are, mm -hmm. or you could build some more down Island Bay or perhaps out by the airport. And these areas could be say, instead of being two stories tall, they could be three or four, or maybe five stories tall. Yeah. And then the government came along and said, enough of all this. Um, everybody, anywhere, can build, you know, three-story houses. Sorry, that was very loud. Uh, but, you know, you can build three houses, three stories tall, on virtually any site that you own. Yeah. And we're going to make it, uh, we're going to actually sign this into law, both the Labour and the National Government shook hands and said, we'll, we'll agree, that, which yeah. is, that's never happened before with virtually mm. anything. Um, except for declaration of war, I think it's the only other time okay. that when you know, things like that where they actually agree. So this is really, really unusual. So it's declaring war on on low density, mm -hmm. effectively. And so they they said that what we need to do is um, free it up so that that people can build more densely. And they they had this ridiculously tiny. It was like a week or two weeks or something, period for consultation. Mm. And there was about two or 3,000 people that said to the government, don't wait, don't do that. That's a really dumb idea. And the government said, be quiet, we're doing it anyhow. <laughs> so they said, we've heard all your, all your complaints, they're all overruled, we're just going to do it. So they abolished any chance of having, having any aspect of quality control. They said, no, this is not about quality control, we just need more houses. Mm. Which is scary. It's okay. Um, we just, we're just going to have... Um, more houses is what we want. So more houses is what we're going to get. But the problem is that there's no control over what they're going to look like or how they're going to work. And so the density uh, standards that they put, minimum residential density standards, you know, you've got things like if you've got um, a main room, in other words, presumably a living room, you have to look out onto a space. It has to have a space in front of it that you can look out onto, which has to be 20 square metres. So... Okay. Uh, four metres by five metres, so, mm -hmm. that, that, so that's either front yard or backyard, and it's not meant to be your driveway, but I think people will probably park a car there anyhow. Mm -hmm. But if in a minor residential, a minor habitable space, you have to have um, an area of one square metre, which is about the size of this table. Mm -hmm. So you can have, you can, your neighbour can be there, you can, as, as long as you can see that's one square metre thing. of space, then that's fine. So unscrupulous developers, of which there are many, mm -hmm. uh, because they're trying to make as much money as they can out of yeah. the, the land they paid a lot of money for. Uh, and so they're saying, fine, we will produce places that have got one square metre of outlook from, from these rooms. And they're going up like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, your people are, are, have 
architects have been asked to design these by developers. And but the thing, problem is that they're not going up perhaps where they should be, which is in Wellington. They're going up in the outskirts of, of the hut. Right. Uh, they're going up Porua, in Porua, the hut, Wairapa. Mm, yeah. Really dense um, uh, proposals by some really, really awful um, housing developments. Um, and so people are going to be there. Plus, they don't have, no longer have to have a car park. So people are going to be parking, trying to find park on the street. There's nowhere to park at their house. Uh, they've got a horrible, shitty house, which is possibly affordable. And then they still have to jump in their car and then drive all the way down the motorway to come into Wellington. So it's going to create an absolute shitstorm, if I'm allowed to say that. It's a totally. specific, uh, specific architectural term yeah, that we nice. use. Yeah. <laughs> um, descended from a Welsh exactly. word. Yeah, yeah Only exactly. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you, you get that, that effectively, that, that, that it's a real problem which is going to be coming. Uh, and it won't yeah. be here this year, but over the next five years, things will get worse and worse and worse. On the on the optimistic side, <laughs> there will be some developers and some architects who will say, I'm not going to design to that minimum standard, I'm going to do better than that. Mm. And so that's why I wrote the book Medium, which is about trying to talk about how we can make better houses. Yeah. And part of that is, is designing around a common space instead of everybody having this little tiny one metre mm. space each. Which so. is common elsewhere, right? Yes. That's the thing. Mm. Yeah. In lots of other countries, yeah. they got their head around this, haven't they? And that's because they've had more time to do so. Right. Okay. So, so you know, England, where I lived for 10 years, you know, they've been living that way for the last 500 years, mm. probably, yeah. uh, probably more. But uh, you know, where, where you'd have you know, the, um, the grand uh, squares of London, like Bedford Square and, mm. and Grosvenor Square and things, where there'd be a common garden in the centre yeah. and everybody would have the houses. They wouldn't have a garden themselves, mm. but you'd look out onto this space um, and, and it's a shared resource, right? It's a shared resource, and yeah. sometimes they privatise it, so sometimes they mm -hmm. put a fence around it and say, you can't come in here unless you've, you know, one of the granted exactly. gentry and, and you've got a key to it. And Special I, handshake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas other other spaces, they're like, no, this yeah. is a, um, a public space for all, and so everybody okay. could go there. So yeah. I live by, by one of the public spaces in Soho Square, which was a lovely space. I didn't have mm. any space in my flat, mm. but Soho Square, we could go down there. And you get half of London sitting in Soho Square. Mm. And it was fun and it was exciting and packed together with, with other people enjoying this, mm. yeah, three big oak trees and, and a patch of grass. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was, it was, uh, there was a, a great sort mm. of spatial experience, mm. enjoyed by about 8,000 residents in the immediate um, vicinity. Uh, but... So what can New Zealand do from that perspective of figuring out the housing? Because since I moved here 10, 11 years ago, it's one of the best places to live if you could sort out your housing mm. in terms yeah. of the quality yeah. which you touched upon, the quality standards. There doesn't really seem to be an appetite for adding any kind of quality into expectations. I think there is if you have really good quality developers. So and so, that, right. okay. again, in England, you know, the, the Bedford Square was, was done by the Duke of Bedford. So, you know, one of Britain's wealthiest men. Mm. Um, and he owned a vast swathe of London. So he said, well, let's do this really nicely. We'll have some houses here and we'll have a big square here. And I'll get some architects and they'll design that. And, you know, the builders will build all the houses. They're all the same. And Whereas here, when you get somebody that says, well, I've got a spare piece of land. And then you've got two small residential dwellings next to you. And then... Down the street, somebody else has got another piece of land. So everyone is all very higgledy-piggledy yeah. and there's mm. nothing coordinated. So right. when I, there is an argument then that to have uh, the, for developers to, to do big coordinated schemes like that. 
which of course that requires council permission. So, but if you're just doing it on your own, which mm. the government has said you can do it on your own, there's no coordination required, no design standards, um, and so that's why that's likely to be bad. Yeah. And I, I would argue that if the developers and the council and the builders and the architects all get together and say, what would be really neat is if we do this, mm. and it all works together. But that's not going to happen that often. Okay. But we will advocate for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's a problem that most people wouldn't even know existed. It's like, oh, it's good that now I can, you know, I've got a big backyard. I can now put a house in there and activate some of the, the, the costs and now <coughs> I get a lot of money for it. And now I'm winning, and, but I got a very close neighbour that yeah. I didn't have before. Yeah. Um, and our architectural practice at, at First Light, we, we actually specialise in doing those sort of backyard houses. Exactly. And um, I wanted to mention that. That's the flip home stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you can you can you can buy a flip home, which is a sort of pre-designed home, mm. but we'll just tweak it slightly to suit your backyard or your side yard or, or whatever, so that it can work. And again, coming back to the quality, though, that I know because I know Paul Swift and some of the other people there, uh, the flip homes seem to be of a quality as well, from a perspective yeah. of sustainability and quality in terms of just well-being. Living yes. in a, a house that doesn't make you ill, in other words. Yeah. Warm, Seems obvious. Warm, dry and quiet <laughs> yeah. and, 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 um, and quite small because you mm. don't need a big thing. So they're not, they're yeah. not big and, and roomy and drafty and leaky. Yep. They're, they're small but uh, well designed so everything is, is there and it's dry. And if you put it in the right place on the site, then it's warm. Mm. Yeah, the sun can come in and heat it up and, and you can be nice and toasty. That's what we want, isn't it? Seems a bit more toast. Yeah. Bit of toast. Everybody loves toast. Yeah. Definitely best food. Um, yeah, the flip home stuff, fascinating. So if you haven't checked that out, please do. Yeah, people, that's like really, really sexy little homes. And because we're all going single or just dual units nowadays, and we, in terms of our living, we're living less as communities and more single entities or double entities. Uh, it's a great way to get on the ladder and all that other stuff. Mm. Well designed, well done. I, I live in an apartment building though, and that's okay. the one thing you can't do with an apartment building is put a second home out the back. <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> There's other people you've got to consider, yeah. Definitely. Um, I don't even have a rooftop. I can't even stick something on the roof, so, um, yeah. In terms of we were talking about nationally there, policy and directives, anything happening in the library slash community spaces from a national policy directive stuff that is both exciting and scary? Well, I think, <laughs> I think the thing that's happening at the moment, mm. which we are most excited about, is just kind of this national movement towards fines free, actually. So for many years, probably dating back kind of into the 80s, there was a sort of idea of user pays. And so, mm. you know, that the library had to generate a certain amount of revenue. And this idea of charging overdue fines kind of popped up. And so for... Oh, at least the last 30 years, libraries right across this country have been charging fines. If you don't return your book on time, you kind of you get, you know, get yep. an overdue charge. And then very slowly, kind of over the last decade, you know, just chipping away some of the libraries kind of went fines free for kids. And then all of a sudden, probably just in the last couple of years, there has mm -hmm. been this massive swing for councils where they've actually, I think, kind of realised, you know, we're sort of talking about the well-being of the communities mm -hmm. and particularly kind of in this era of COVID, um, and yet we've kind of got this very punitive way of punishing people if they don't bring items back, and actually there's no evidence that that works anyway. Oh, okay. And so uh, as of kind of about the 1st of July, I think 53% of the libraries in New Zealand have gone fines-free, so it's sort of reached this tipping point where we actually think yeah. uh, it will get to the point where 
actually all of the councils will go ahead and and go fines free because there's this huge kind of pressure now. All of the big councils have done it. Lots of the little councils around New Zealand have done it. Mm. And it's it's a huge game changer for people. I don't actually think people quite realise because for a long time there have been people who've just, who haven't come into our spaces because they don't want to borrow books because they're scared of fines. Oh, okay. Mm. Even just kind of, I mean, we had some of the, more hefty fines in New Zealand. But even if you had, you know, five books and they were all five days overdue, that was $20. And $20 is a huge amount to some people. Mm. Um, and so just that ability to kind of say, you can come in and you can use all the resources here and mm. you, know, you can forget to forget as human and it's still going to be fine. Yeah. Bring that back. So that's probably one of the most exciting mm. things that we're seeing at the moment is just that huge kind of swing and understanding of, you know, kind of what libraries are about and, you know, there's not really revenue generating, it's not a revenue generating exercise to have a library. Actually, they're kind of, they're here for community yeah. mm. and part of the way we make them here for community is to make them free. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah no, I didn't realise it was that number, 53%, okay, yeah. and probably will be going up. Yes. It will, continue yeah. to grow. We think it will because the, mm. this, you know, and it's, it's council election year. And okay. people will campaign on that, actually, mm. because it's, a, it's councils are always looking for good news stories. <clears throat> Libraries offer good news stories. Yeah. Fines Free Library, very good news story. Well, for years, Wellington has had a sort of draconian attitude to the libraries, haven't they? You know, you know like every year that there was, maybe it was every year there was an election, or maybe it was just every year, they would say, we're going to axe the mobile library. And everybody would say, <laughs> don't axe the mobile library. We like that because it comes to us. And they're like, no, no, it's it's um, users' money, so we're going to axe it. Yeah. And then then it would be like, okay, we're going to keep the mobile library. And, and then the next year, good so like twelve that. months later, it's like, guess what? We're going to axe it. It's like, no, we've been through this. So can you explain what happened? Well, then we did get rid of the mobile library actually, oh. and then I'm sorry to say, but then I th- I oh. think what sometimes happens is that they move it onto the next target, and people yes. go. Hmm, that collections budget for buying books, that looks a bit, looks a bit big. Yeah. <laughs> but I think people are, I think there's kind of a move away from that now. I, I do feel as though in the last kind of five or six years, there's sort of been this much better realisation, particularly through COVID, I think, as, as, you know, so many kind of services and things were offered out through libraries and e-books and everything pivoted online. And yeah. there has just been this much greater realisation that actually libraries are really there kind of for your community. Yeah. And there is a very low appetite from the ratepayers to cut things associated with libraries. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes that's a really good thing because mm-hmm. your collection budget is intact. Um, other times it slightly works against us because if you do have a site you know, that is not used very much, mm. they stay open. And so... My view is, you know, if you're going to keep something open that's not used very much, let's invest in it so that it's kind of used more as mm. often you can't yeah. close things, yeah. Or reactivate it in a different way, I suppose. Yeah. Right? Which is your community exactly. spaces. Exactly, thinking way. about that Community, community libraries, their spaces that are common yeah. but could be utilised for different things and they're traditionally what you thought would be useful. Yes, and I feel as though community space is one of those things. It's, it's a bit like time, you know. You, right. you, you can never have enough of it. There will always be community uses for those spaces, mm. um, and there will always be people in the community who want to use them. And the more Definitely. you have, the more mm. they will be used. Have you ever been to the Pukarua Bay Library? No. Because I know it's not in Wellington City, it's in Pukarua City. Yeah. But it's the cutest library, I think, in New Zealand. 
It's about the size of the three of us in this table. <laughs> it's, it's, you can walk in and you can look around, and it's got, you know, it, the, the the school the the playground next to it is bigger than the library itself, mm. um, and it's really it's you know it's, it's twenty square meters or something. Um, That's sweet. And it's 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 great. It's a, mm. and it just feels you know because Pukarua Bay is quite a small community, mm. and it really feels like this is really our library. You know, and I'm sure that every now and then. Poirou says, let's close it down and everybody can go into Poirou and they're like, no, this is our space. <laughs> yeah. It's got 300 books and yeah. half of them are crap, but it doesn't matter because no. it's their space. Yeah. Huge sense of community yeah. ownership over spaces like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the one of the things that a lot of councils have kind of underestimated too is that sense of community ownership, but also that the quality of the space also has a huge impact mm. on how much it's used. Mm. So you do kind of get some libraries where you sort of see they've been kind of run down and then councils kind of go, well, they're not really being used. It's like, well, actually, everybody enjoys a beautiful space. If you make the yeah. space lovely and welcoming, mm. uh, it will get the use that you are looking for. Yeah. It's an easy investment. There's another curious development that I've noticed um, happening on Pinterest, where by in, in the UK, the old phone boxes have been converted into community libraries. Mm. So, you know, just, just that many books, and there's no one in each village, because there used to be a phone box in each village. Uh-huh. Nobody makes public phone calls anymore, so... Yeah. The old telephone boxes have been, and a lot of yeah. some of them being made into bars, and some of them into toilets. And but in most cases, they've just been made into little little community village um, ring of libraries, type thing, yeah, right? yeah. which I think is fantastic. We actually have something similar out at Zelandia, the wildlife sanctuary. Oh, yeah. uh, we, there's, a, oh. there's a little there was a, a little box there that's all beautifully painted up, and it has books in it. And the idea is that uh, you often don't see the wildlife or the birds out there unless you just sit quietly for a few minutes. And so the idea is you come up and you get a book and you read quietly for five minutes. So that the bird life will kind of return and you can see what you've come to see through mm. doing that. That's a lovely way to create space and experience through a, a kind of a subversive kind of idea of going, no, do this, and then the other thing will happen, right? <laughs> kind of like, oh, forget what you came here for, try this. It's like mm. clever, tricky. In terms of what else have I not asked and pro, uh, provoked from you that you would like to ask or have recovered most things? I got one juicy question to round us off. Anything? No, I mean, okay. I, I would, I, I would love to um, be able to get people to to, to read more mm. and to um, and. Because I, th- I think there's something so important to me about about reading from a page, and I guess some people are going through a e-reader or something where they're doing that. But this this act of physically reading, and maybe I'm just an old school weirdo, but you know, um, I, I have about five books on the go at any time. I've got one in the loo, one beside my mm. bed, one in the living room, one at the batch, you mm. know, and I, ha- I read all these books. And so sometimes you get a little bit muddled up because you're in the middle of a, <laughs> a uh, crime place. story over there, and, and then you go to a historical fiction and, and you know all of these sorts of things. I'm really shot then. Um, I thought we were in the future. <laughs> yeah. And stuff and just like, yeah, but I, um, there's something quite nice in a way, but you know, you. you so I had one book which I've been reading, which is a massive book, which is The Life of um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. And um, so it's about 500 pages. So, but, you know, it's not something you can sit down and read in one go. But so yeah, it took me about three weeks to get through it. But, you know, you leave a little marker and you start up and say, yes, OK, she's at this phase and the anti-abortion thing. And, and yeah, it's so topical at the moment yeah. with, with, with all of that. But um, it's that process of being able to, you know, when you've got a minute, you stop, you sit down, you pick it up. It's like, where was I? 
Okay, it's like scamming. That's what was happening, and so that that whole to me that whole physical aspect of of reading a book, and and sometimes if the book is good enough, you'll actually remember the space you were in when you read it, and things like that. Or you know, I remember that book. You know, or, uh, I can like with Tintin books, it takes me back to a, a batch that we went to when I was you know five years old or something like that, and, and we were reading reading those, and so it takes me to that place. Um, so yeah, I, I love the way that a book can do that, which I, I would say you can't get with a electronic text or a PDF on screen, it's just not going to be the same. You can't find your way in the book the same because, you know, there's a million pages and who knows which one you're on, you can't, right. yeah, so. Well, I think that's one of the misconceptions too is that, you know, that, that people are all kind of moving to online. Actually, whenever we survey people, people across every age group prefer physical books. Oh. They still do, yeah. So, know, right? yeah, the book is not dead, so you heard it here. Do you, do you buy <laughs> Books and keep, do you have books of your own? Or I mean, you live in a library, so, so, so you do. don't need to. Do I think you? once a book lover, always a book lover. Yeah, you can't okay. stop. You can't stop. It doesn't matter yeah. that we kind of I'm surrounded by them. That I get to see what people are purchasing. Yeah. Um, but there is, there's something quite delicious about a physical book that just is. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be replicated by Kindle. No. Yeah. There was a, a bizarre little um, thing I found once where somebody was was com- saying, you know. That these people are just showing off because they've got so many books. <laughs> and they're saying to them they, they thought the books were a status symbol and that people just had these books um, because, you know, once you read them, you don't need them again. Um, and, and obviously, I'm sure you're like me, and the books are old friends, and you buy them and you keep them, and that book is yours forever. And, and you know, so I've got thousands of books in, in, my, in my flat, which, you know, because I, I just love books. And, and, you know, each one of them I've read, and it brings back a certain time and space and, and life and things like that. And... Um, is there one book for both of you that you've read too many times, or many times rather than too many times? Not, not for me. No, no. no. I will, I will okay. often read books uh, a couple of times, but uh, uh, no. It's not one that you've like yet yeah, seven or eight times have read. Uh, no, because I'm an, an academic in, in theory or yeah. an architect in, in practice. Then, you know, I I have to know enough about a book to know where to find the information was that I remembered from last time. So I think, ah, yes, that's that particular fact. I need to, that's good. I'll make a note of that. Mm. So get the book and then, then, you know, a year later when I'm looking for that fact, it's like, where was that book? Which, mm. which, which book was it? It's like, was it this one? Yeah. Ah, yes. Or no, more often, yeah. but yes. Do you have a book right there? I was going to say no, but then I've reflected and I've actually read at least, at least three, maybe four times. Mm a set of books, which I just mentioned previously in the other recording, so there's some continuity here, but um, it's a trilogy book by Mervyn Peake called The Gormenghast Trilogies, mm-hmm. yeah. which are very fantastical and far too laden with words for T- me. Titus Grown. A Titus Grown, and then Titus Alone, and then Gormenghast, the yeah. three books yeah. in the series. Mm. Um, and for some reason, I think I read them first time when I was about 12, maybe 11. And wow, I was immersed right into this fantastical world. And I read them when I was a little bit older. And I thought, this is really good. Like, but I had a little bit, like when I was 17 or 16, like that, it was amazing. And I remember before I emigrated, I bought them but in a compendium. So it was all in one book this time. That's it was dedication. a thick thing, yeah. And I remember reading, I thought, I'll give this a go. And... I was engrossed again, and I remember reading it once when I was in New Zealand. So yeah, four yeah. times. There we go. Wow. For some reason, you just get lost in it because mm. of the descriptive approach he takes to writing. Mm. Like he'll spend three pages just on the hall, 
that they're describing, the scene's going to happen in. They haven't started yet. It's just the hall, right? And it's just like, for some people, they hate it. I know my dad tried it and he was like, it's awful. It never gets to the bloody point. I'm like, yeah, but lose yourself in the grandiosity yeah. of language and yeah. words. Have you got anything you've gravitated back Oh, I've got quite a lot of books that I've probably read eight or nine times actually. Right, okay. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, when something, it's that aspect of kind of getting lost. I, I kind of mm. find that there's either in fiction that kind of aspect of getting lost that I really love. Yeah. Um, and then in non-fiction, I find it's that aspect of finding yourself. So it's almost the opposite thing where you kind oh. of understand more about yourself through reading something. And so I've kind of got, you know, fiction books where you're kind of like I'm completely lost. And then non-fiction books where I was like, ah. I understand that kind of thing about myself now because wow. I read that. Yeah. That's a lovely dichotomy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just to be aware of your time and being grateful for it, uh, let's wrap up with a question um, which is common often in Creative Welly is because of our tagline, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. I like the courageous bit. And I always like to ask, what does courage look like in your, in your world slash profession? I don't mind how you answer that. For me, it's always been uh, talking about the uncomfortable truth, I think. Um, One of the things that we struggle with, I think, as a profession uh, is this idea of neutrality. And it's been a very ingrained kind of idea that libraries are neutral places. Mm. Um, And actually, it's not true. Right. It's not true. And so some of it is... Uh, for me, about having that kind of difficult but truthful conversation that says, uh, actually, this thing that you thought was true, that's not really true. But do you know what? That's all right. Mm. We just have to explore together what the what the new truth is or what does this now need to become. Mm. Yeah, that's brave. Yeah. Therefore, you need courage. Yeah. Love that. But you, Guy? I think that there's a lot of... Uh, Courage comes into architecture quite a lot, and sometimes uh, it's hand in hand with ego. Mm. So you get a lot of uh, buildings which are very courageous because mm. the architect has had a massive ego, and typically it'll be because it's a man um, with with far too much ego, as as often happens, and they will be building something that's their vision, and you know, mm. and and that's the thing about Zaha is that she had the ability to to out ego any of the, the men <laughs> in, in the scene. And her buildings were you know, the most ballsy buildings yeah. that, that you would see. But huge courage to, mm. to propose something like that to a client. It's, you know, yeah. Clients, it's their money you're spending. And so, you know, mm. you had a budget of two million, but actually, if we spent five million, we could do this. And, um, yeah, and, and often the clients will just say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so you have to have Mm. Um, you know, a huge amount of, of ego and of courage to propose something like that. And mm. most of the time it doesn't happen, but sometimes it, we do manage to pull it off and you get an amazingly courageous building as, as a result. Um, okay. And so, um, you know, there's a couple of the, the, the new ones that have gone up on the waterfront at the moment, which are highly courageous, you know, in terms of uh, what they're doing in terms of their engineering, so their seismic ability to withstand a, okay. a two and a half thousand year earthquake, you know, a really big seismic event, and, and so the rest of the city will be flattened and there'll be, you know, three or four buildings remaining. Um, and shuddering away, reverberating. Yeah, they'll just be slowly wobbling <laughs> on, their, on, their, on their base isolation, and now the, the, the library will be one of yes. those one day, uh, as long as it doesn't get hit in the meantime, but yeah, the library will, will survive, mm. and so will uh, Te Papa and, and, um, and Parliament, you know, and, and uh, two or three of the 
uh, high rises and everything else will fall down. Um, and so you have, but you have to be courageous, um, you know, to, to think on, on that scale, to, to design both the architects and the engineers and, and, and the client with the budget to say, actually, I want this to last and I want it to be of sufficient quality that it'll be um, here forever, uh, effectively. That takes That's the key. Yeah, takes a lot. Thank you for that. I think we've uh, covered most bases. We could have done double the time, but I appreciate you've got actual lives to get to. But thank you. Thank for you. spending some time with us. Pleasure. Good to meet you and have a chat with you. It's been lovely. Mm. Yeah, and you. That was Creative Welly, episode 36. Thank you for your attention. Really appreciate it. Again, you can catch us on creativewelly.com and find all the ways to kind of subscribe and also to watch because you're listening to the audio version of the video podcast. And the video podcast is quite unique. So check us out there. Again, big thank you to John O'Tucker over at Empire Films for putting together the video of this. Couldn't do it without you, fella. Thank you very much. And also thanks to David at Flash Dog Studio for hosting the recording of Creative Welly. Keep having courageous conversations with bold humans and we're actually going to be taking a break. So we'll allow you to pick up those conversations from here on out and we'll be back at the end of the year.